Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a Houdinki podcast. It's a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 122, and we thank you for listening. James, it feels like uh, it's been a while since we talked. I don't know why that is. I guess we're kind of looping into this new bi-monthly format now, and it just seems like it's been, been ages. Yeah, it does kind of, and I think especially because the last episode didn't really have you know, it was it was an amazing episode with with Fabian, and and you know, thank big thanks again to Fabian for being on the show. But it didn't have our normal, we didn't have our normal hour hour and a half of true yeah. of chatting and kind of catching up. We we you know we kind of compressed that into uh, into a little piece before the show. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it. I, I think the new format's going fine. Uh, I'm excited to get a uh, you know when people are listening to this that we'll be pushing in towards the end of. Uh, of August certainly, and then right around the end of the the month, maybe in the first couple of days of September, we'll also have our next Q and A episode, which will get us to the three three episodes a month, which we had talked about in the past. But uh, beyond that, you know, beyond the beyond the format change, how have things been the last couple of weeks for you? Oh, pretty good. Um, it's all sort of blurring together. It's hard to believe it's the it's the end of the summer. I mean, it's like here. I, in the states, we've got Labor Day coming up next uh, in like two weeks, and then that's kind of the kickoff of fall. It's it's the, the August has flown. Um, uh, it sure has. Yeah, but you know it's 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 been good. We Gashani and I got up north for uh, kind of our annual visit to this uh, shipwreck we dive up on the north shore of Lake Superior, which w- was a, a really great day. That was uh, last Sunday, I guess it was, and um, got some great photos and and just enjoyed some really perfect shore diving weather it was uh, pretty flat flat water conditions and a little too warm topside for suiting up into a, a dry suit but uh, <laughs> hauling gear from the car down to I've the been there down to the beach but uh you know I man I, I remember a couple of times you 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 just kind of just barely get everything on it's you know maybe 90 95 degrees <laughs> it, as hot as it would get in in vancouver certainly yeah. No, not much hotter than that ever. So I remember diving Kelvin Grove with my cousin Brendan, and uh, several times it was one of our favorite sites. And Jason, that's where I took you as well. It's a big wall dive that you kind of start with a very shallow, kind of aquarium-like entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you go at low tide, you've also got to get over a lot of like logs and stuff. Yeah, uh, there's not really a beach. There's some rocks. It's a very um, steep. So you you go down a couple pretty steep hills. And uh, usually almost entirely fully suited because it's a real pain to do it at the shore. Yeah. Uh, but I remember a couple of times I went down and, you know, you've got the the, the dry suits really got a good hold on your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I have I would I would not put my hood on until I got off. So I had that kind of a, my arm through the hood and then my mask in there as well. You get down, <laughs> get down to the bottom and get into, you know, enough water to put your fins on. And just kind of lean forward with all this weight on you. Uh, you're not quite deep enough to to have the BC taking the weight off you. And I swear, like you just be just on the edge of tunnel vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that sensation though of of being so hot from being suited up, and then you get in the water. And you know, Lake Superior last weekend was oh, for 45 sure. degrees Fahrenheit. That's nine centigrade or something. And it's like immediately it just cools you right down. It was. It's nice, of course, and then when you come back from the dive, you're chilled to the bone, and then you get out into that 90-degree air temp, and it feels good for like another hour. But uh, Oh, it really does, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's, fun. it's fun also because you get the um, – you, you, can, you, you can choose how quickly you get the, the chill. Yeah. If you're in a dry – or if, if you're in a wetsuit, you can't make that decision so, so easily. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in a dry suit, you can just kind of – you, you want to bring your heart rate back down so you don't breathe through a tenth of your tank on the descent. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so you just kind of chill at the top and let the water kind of do its thing uh, before before you start relying on the air and the tank and stuff. And that's uh, what a great dive. That's one that I certain certainly miss. And now now thinking of it, feel quite nostalgic for uh, uh, <laughs> the few times that that we had uh, some some really really nice deep dives. There's a great octopus in there as well. And I, re- I was thinking we we did a couple of shore dives this summer at a couple of places where we had to hump all of our gear for a fair distance and. It made me think back to one of your product recommendations. Gosh, it might have even been last holiday season. Those uh, collapsible wagons with the big, oh, with yeah, the big tires sure. that you can pull around. And yeah, I was like, Mack wagons. That really would have been nice to have in the back of the Volvo to kind of uh-huh. load our tanks. Although there was a set of stairs, but at least we could have gotten it close and... Yeah, well, uh, the, they nice. have a like an exposed sort of framework. Yeah. So when when you get to a set of stairs, someone takes each end. Yeah. Yeah, and you could kind of hoist your way down. Uh, with that one, I would recommend spending a little bit more than I did and get the one that has locking wheels. Oh, 
just so that if you have, because that's a lot of weight yeah. if you're talking about tanks and scuba weight and, and the gear and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I know a couple times I, uh, you know, you've got a, a kid or maybe two kids in, in said wagon and you got to keep your hand on the handle because it'll take off. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, runaway <laughs> tanks would not be good. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those those Mack wagons, someone, uh, a reader just just wrote me not that long ago asking uh, to clarify what those wagons were and they're still, still on Amazon and yeah. still super useful for, uh, yeah, kids or tanks or groceries yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Nice not to use the car sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and certainly when it comes to the scenario you're describing, it's not an option. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I it was it was a good good weekend. It was uh, kind of felt good to, to get out and have a little bit of a, an adventure, a few hours up the road, and um, yeah. So I, I wrote that up. I started up kind of a newsletter platform um, that that you had very kindly uh, wrote about it for the the weekend update on Hodinkee this past Saturday, and I, I appreciated that because uh, it's nice to get the word out. But I, I started this newsletter platform on a a site called Substack. And I, I learned of this through Michael Williams. I don't know if you know him. He's from A Continuous Lean. I used to meet him occasionally on press trips for watches. And he's a, he's in the PR business and he's done some work with Red Wing Shoes and um, dabbles in watches a little bit. But he used to have a kind of a menswear and style blog that I used to follow casually. And he stopped doing that a couple of years ago. And he recently relaunched on Substack and you know, I was like, "What is this all about?" Well, it's 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 really kind of an old school newsletter. You get it, um, however often the person agrees to publish, and then some of the content is free, and some people pay for it if they want to. And and so I started doing that about two weeks ago, and have published three or four articles. One of one of them was on this dive that we did, and a couple of watch related things. And it's been fun. It's it's kind of neat to uh, it, it to me. It feels like kind of a writing version of TGN. You know, I just sort of mm-hmm. talk about things that I want to talk about or, you know, write about things I want to write about. So it's been fun and it's it's fun to watch the audience grow and I've gotten a lot of feedback. It's kind of a little community with people leaving comments and so, killer. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been some fun so far. So thanks to everybody who who has signed up for that. I know that we've got a lot of listeners that have done that. So it's uh, going great so far. Yeah, everyone, uh, I, I've really been enjoying it. You know, in full, full transparency, Jason gifted me a uh, a subscription so I didn't have to pay pay the money, but I, I paid it forward and, and got a subscription for a mutual friend of ours who's a big fan of Jason's writing and uh, Gashani's photography and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and yeah, it's uh, I, I'm really impressed so far. I like it. I like that it is a little bit more TGN. It's, you know, it's a good spot for the stuff that isn't going somewhere else, but is in your brain. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, I was, I was tempted to, uh, I've, I've so far not copied you by, by going down the same path, but it's, uh, Please do. I, I certainly don't have yeah. uh, a single moment these days yeah. to, to write more than I am, but yeah. Uh, I, I think it's great. And if you're listening, definitely go in and at least hit the, the free stuff. Yeah. Give it a try. Yeah. Subscribe, see what you get for free. But the, uh, it's definitely worth uh, the, the small amount of money that you're asking for it. So. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, so we'll see where it goes. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, that's great. What, uh, what's new on your end besides just tons of writing? Yeah, so I have, um, by the time this comes out, theoretically, the, the schedule these days is, is bonkers, especially with this week. We're actually going to drop this episode at a very inopportune time for growing our audience, but uh, the core fans will know that uh, you know, Jason, and I probably don't have a ton to say about the watches that by now will have partly been announced for Geneva watch days. Uh, you know, I, I think it's crazy that there's going to be a, a press, uh, like an in-person press event in Geneva oh, uh, right. with people from, from all over the world, uh, coming in. Uh, but that, that is going on. This will be a Thursday, which will be day two of three or three and a half days of the Geneva watch days. So of course, if you're seeing this post on Hodinkee, there'll be posts on either side of it and all around it of new watches from all of these brands. It's been a really busy time, but certainly by the time this episode comes up, I will have had at least one of those, these huge pieces I've been working on yeah. uh, come up, which would be that my week on the wrist with the uh, Seiko SPB 143, which we have an entire episode on. And, and honestly, it also aligns with what we're talking about in the main topic of this episode. Uh, so I, I don't think we definitely don't need to say anything more about that, that watch. It's a, it's a great watch. I have it on my wrist. Uh, I like it quite a bit. Um, but if you, if you have any questions for me about that watch, please, please just read the 3,700 words I wrote for, for Hodinkee. I don't have, I, I genuinely don't believe I have, uh, another five words in me about this one. It's a, it's a great, it's a great watch that I'm happy with, but if, if you want the details hit it there. 
Uh, we did the video, which was a, a huge labor of love to try and try and create that here. Uh, if you're hearing the extreme banging, that's because we, we had to kind of record this uh, during the day because my evening schedule is full uh, with other Hodinkee work for the, the next couple days. Uh, so they're doing, uh, they're doing, I don't know, I think they're picking up small elephants and <laughs> dropping them upstairs, something like that. Uh, I apologize for the noise. I apologize for it. And I will continue to, Jason, I had been recording in the evenings and sometimes that's just not tenable. I mean, there's only, there is 24 hours a day. I, you know, I, I'd like to sleep for four or five of them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the other ones are, are, are pretty packed these days. So uh, we're doing what we can. I apologize for uh, some of the banging and uh, any other sort of tool or whatever noise you might catch in the uh, in the recording i'll do my best to edit around it um but yeah so that that goes up i have another huge post uh even bigger than the week on the wrist that's in in progress and has been for several months it's a it's a big one uh that we're we're working on and, and trying to source photos for and that kind of thing it's difficult to do some of the photo stuff uh you know during this time when you can't really expect to get watches and if you can how do you shoot them and and that sort of thing so yeah, you've really had to had to make do with some weird scenarios. Everything from construction on the other side of the wall to mm-hmm. you know a pandemic uh, affecting watch shipments and and all that kind of stuff, and, and the video shoot and everything else. But uh, you'd, you'd think that the the overall climate would lend itself towards a slower pace. Yeah, right. Um, and it's just been the exact opposite. It's just been completely crazy. Huh. Huh. Um, and then and then take all of that and add in. Geneva watch days and, and the fact that, you know, as I'm saying this on Monday, I have no idea how many posts we will have to write kind of immediately. Oh yeah. Right. When, uh, when the stuff comes up, some of it's embargoed and we, and we've seen it and it's covered and that's kind of thing. But a lot of these brands are kind of, they're doing their own kind of video presentations and, and they want everything to be timed kind of with that kind of stuff. And everybody kind of has their own plan about how to launch a watch during this whole scenario. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you have to kind of be very much responsive, uh, to that. So it's, uh, it's just been, uh, been kind of a crazy time. And and I guess I'm only saying that because it's, um, I don't have a ton to talk about. Uh, like (laughs) I'm not really doing that much that isn't work. I started watching Perry Mason, but I'm not far enough in, into that to say, to give any like conclusive, I'm four episodes in and they're four amazing episodes. Really, really good show. Oh, good to know. I'm curious about that one. So far, it's it's really good. It's beautifully shot. It's and, and all that kind of thing. And then the other thing I, I will add is, you know, I uh, on a previous episode I spoke about this Godox flash that I bought because I broke my good Canon EX uh, right, flash. Right, right. So I have a bunch more photography coming up in the next little while. Some stuff that's also kind of outside my normal setup, uh, where I, I I kind of shoot most of the the reviews in the same sort of format. And for that, I figured I, I'd actually like two flashes and some sort of a remote trigger. So I went. I figured it'd be easier, at least, just to price the Godox stuff. Yeah. And I ended up buying um, a higher end version of their of the same flash I bought previously. So I bought a TT six hundred, and then I bought a TT six eighty five, which has TTL. Hmm. Uh, so you can put it right on a Canon, and it does all the metering and everything, and, and gives you a good estimation. And I'm not a huge user of TTL. I like just a simple power control. Yeah. But the fun thing is the way that that, that technology actually crosses over with their trigger, and allow me maybe five minutes of, of uh, and allow me maybe five minutes of geeking out on um, on the camera. But the trigger is this kind of pod that you connect into the hot shoe of any camera, any camera that's really not a Sony. This one will work with yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Um, and the triggers uh, essentially. It's a blended kind of smart and dumb device. Smart in that it can see the TTL reading from the main flash, but it allows you to control from wherever I'm standing. I can put these flashes pretty far away, 100 feet away or something, if you for whatever reason, if you wanted to. But And then you can control the power of each flash using its own little network. Yeah. And it's super easy, uh, super straightforward, not very expensive. Certainly all of this gear that I bought was cheaper than renting the Canon stuff for a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, just to give you a comparison, not buying the Canon, obviously it's, it's a, it's a fraction of the cost of buying the Canon, but it was cheaper than renting it, huh. um, to go this route. And the cool thing is, is you can actually take a TTL reading on the smart flash, the flash that does TTL. Yeah. And then paste that to all of the flashes in the control group. And then with one button, drop them all back to manual. Huh? So that, so that thing where you start to learn a room and where the light is going and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you skip like the first 10 minutes. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
So you just let the flash read the room through the camera, take a test shot. If you're kind of like okay with it, you click one button and it puts those settings to all the ki- all the flashes it can yeah. do. And then you can just click it back into manual. They all go to manual, which means you can very easily dial one up or down to kind of change the intensity. Sure. It's anyways, it's super clever um, for not being that clever. I, I all, all told, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. It's probably less than 150 bucks uh, for the trigger and the additional flash. Uh, I got a couple lamp stands, some umbrellas, that sort of thing for shooting more difficult subjects. And uh, and yeah, that's that's basically what I've been up to is in in, in my quote unquote free time. Uh, just kind of, yeah, listening to Donut Media's past gas podcast yeah. and uh, <laughs> and trying to teach myself how to use a kind of multi-strobe trigger uh, setup. I've, I've been impressed <laughs> so far. It's, it's really fun to learn something kind of new and, and kind of sample slightly different pieces of photography. You know, so much of what I've done previously is either you know, with a supply, like a, a natural light right. or with a, sing- with a single flash and I usually use like white paper, the cardstock to bounce the light around yeah. to fill in the dark spots. Yeah. Uh, this is a little bit more intense, but uh, but it also feels a little bit more customizable and a little bit more flexible and, and, and you can kind of have different effects with it, which is which is cool. Yeah, that's cool. It reminds me, I know when Gashani was doing more studio shooting in the basement here, she uses, uh, we bought uh, Pocket Wizard makes a kind of a similar. Yeah, they make a super popular one. Setup. Yeah, I think that's high, that's higher end than the Godox stuff for sure. But uh, I think we still have that kicking around, but we aren't using it much anymore. But uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's it's pretty cool. It's almost like magic that you can trigger all the stuff and set everything from one one main unit. So yeah, and, and not having to walk from one to the other to check on it. Right, it all updates. Yeah, like there's a screen on the controller that shows you the power of every flash and yeah. you can just you can shut a flash off from there you don't have to walk over and turn it off it's all it's cool yeah when you're shooting watches and, and everything's within about your arm's <laughs> length it's right. less important right but um you know as i've explained previously when i shoot with one camera flash off camera i use a cable so there's no ability to go no elegant ability to go to two cables yeah it'd be i guess you could maybe do that maybe somebody makes that maybe i could wire it myself um, but it, then you're super manual where you're, you gotta, you have to do everything right. um, at that point. And this is, this is a little bit more elegant, you know, uses roughly the same number of batteries, which is always a concern and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, should be, should be flexible. I'll, I'll report back if people care. Uh, if I don't hear that people care, I won't mention it anymore, but I, I was impressed by their stuff. This isn't an ad. They, I bought it on Amazon. It's a, uh, it's, it's been good so far. Hmm. Normally I'm pretty scared of the cheap stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the flashes, you know, if a flash is powerful enough, it's powerful enough. I don't need any of the, or I guess in this case, I need very little of the smart features. Yeah. Um, so this, they work kind of like a normal studio strobe where you're setting the power. Sure. Well, I, this reminds me, you know, speaking of, of, of lighting, uh, resources or, or solutions, um, in terms of, uh, underwater photography, if anyone is interested, uh, mm. you know, for years we were using, uh, just kind of wired, strobes on the underwater housing that we use and uh we decided we would try constant video lights um to see if they would be powerful enough to mimic what you can get with strobes without having to fiddle around with you know adjusting the the strobe strength underwater and and the ability to focus in darker conditions and you know there's some mm-hmm. really high end uh strobes from a brand called Keldon or or video lights oh, from a brand yeah. called Keldon and they're Super expensive, and and I came across this other brand called Kraken, that are just a fraction of the price, and and they've got a new version out that each one is uh, fifteen thousand lumens, which is incredibly bright. Wow, like blinding, blindingly bright. And so we've used it on two dives this summer, and they're fantastic. And there's even a, a small port where you can actually wire in a strobe cable, and and it will fire. Um, not TTL or not really adjustable, but it'll fire at one and a half times that fifteen thousand lumens as a as an actual strobe if you want it to but they're, they're, oh that's clever they've turned out re- to be a, a really uh, great solution for us um, because you can also shoot video you just crank them up on high and even at you know a couple of weeks ago at you know 70 feet deep in pretty dark lake water it, they were I mean I couldn't even look at Gashani <laughs> she was aiming the camera at me and I she'd have to tilt it away or down to give me direction to do something because it was like super bright so um, if anyone's interested um, in a fairly affordable underwater lighting solution. I would highly recommend Kraken. We've used their lights for just kind of wrist torches for, for diving at night and stuff, but uh, their their video lights are spectacularly good and really long battery life. So 
really good. What was that? What was the name of the other brand? They, they use it's like a bright pink or purple case. The right? Keldens, yeah, the Keldens. Keldens, yeah. yeah. There's some guys on um, on my Clipperton expedition, yeah. that were running running Keldens, and every time I thought I had lost my team, yeah, yeah diving, you just look around, yeah, you just look around. There's somebody just blinding. You can yeah. see your own shadow at times yeah. during the daylight. Those Keldens are crazy. They, you, and I was like, oh, how bright are they? He's like, well, you can't turn them on if you're not underwater. Yep. Because they just overheat they for one thing. Yeah. melt or light on fire yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, cool. I like that. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. So that's that's rad. I like it. Well, enough uh, enough lighting geekery. We should jump into our main topic here. But before we do, you are correct me if I'm wrong. I think I heard you say you're wearing the the Seiko SPB one four. I am. Yeah. For the the wrist check, there's not much to add. We did a whole episode on it. By now, the week on the wrist is up. I think I'm actually now. <laughs> just allowed to be an owner of the watch. I don't have to do, do yeah, anything right. more yeah. more with it. But yeah, I'm wearing my SPB143, a.k.a. the SBDC101. Uh, and I, I actually threw it on a green uh, uh, Halios strap. Mm, and nice. it's uh, it's kind of perfect. I'm, I'm not outside and sweating a bunch today. I'm sitting inside in, in AC and yeah. uh, n- nice to, to wear something that's not uh, a rubber strap, which is what I've been going with for a while. Yeah, right. And uh, how about you? Yeah, so um, a friend of mine uh, recommended this new waffle strap from Watch Gecko. It's called their Seacroft waffle strap, and mm-hmm. you know Watch Gecko makes that great rubber NATO that you and I both like, the Zulu diver. For sure, the Zulu diver. So I I ordered this waffle strap. It's a twenty two millimeter strap. You can get it in twenty, I believe, as well. But I'm, I put it on my SRP triple seven, the Turtle, and you know, of course it's a, it's modeled after one of Seiko's original rubber straps and and it works perfectly on the watch. It's great. It's soft. You know, I had a waffle strap that Seiko used to make for that Marine Master 300 years ago and cool strap, but boy was that stiff rubber. I remember having to boil water and like curl it and then oh wow. like pre-curl it and like if you put it in boiling <laughs> water it'll stay that way. <laughs> this one sure. you don't need to do that. It's must have a nice sort of silicone blend. It has that vanilla smell. It's it's a really 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 high quality rubber strap and I, I recommend it for anyone looking for for uh, a good waffle rubber but uh yeah other than that i ordered some new straps from haviston so haviston makes those kind of thicker colorful natos and nylon straps uh, out of the uk and and they they kind of teased out a photo on instagram of this one they call the saber which is modeled after the, the color scheme of the f86 uh, super saber jet from the the 60s and 70s and um just a, a neat strap. I'm not usually for a lot of color on my NATOs, but this is a really, really nice sort of gray, yellow with some thin black stripes that that go really well with the uh, the Aquadive uh, Poseidon that I have. Um, and then while I was at it, I ordered one of their kind of shinier parade NATOs in an olive drab and then a canvas. So it was my first canvas strap, believe it or not. Oh, nice. Okay. They have this M1943 canvas, which is actually not a, a NATO. It's not a two-piece strap. It's one of those single-pass Mm-hmm. straps and uh so that um looks really good on a number of watches so i'm really pleased with that well what do you think we maybe just bounce right into the main topic yeah let's do it i mean we're, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of summer as i mentioned at the top of the show but you know it's a good time to kind of look back and recap all these amazing dive watches i mean what a year for dive watches just uh, amazing yeah, I agree. It's been it's been a crazy year for dive watches. You know, I've joked on the Hodinkee podcast and in other places. You know, hot dive watch summer is a real thing. Uh, it just seemed like like there was a confluence of of everybody wanting to put out a dive watch that was a, a little bit more realistic in its sizing. In some cases, very re- realistic in pricing, and in some cases, just kind of a special thing that you didn't expect. And and I think at this one, you know, obviously we've spoke at length about the Doxa Carbon, the Zin U50, the uh, Tudor Black Bay 58 Blue, and the SPB 143, but there are so many more. So we're going to, if you want to hear about those, go listen to the last 10 episodes where we rambled on. I, to me, I rambled on a lot about all of those watches. Um, but with uh, with this, I think there's been there's been some stuff even like since the last thing we recorded. Yeah. There were kind of some 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 fun uh, developments in this space. But uh, Jason, why don't you pick one of interest from the list? We've got a list here. I don't think we're going to get to everything. I think that we'll, uh, we'll miss something. And if, if, the, if, if the dive watch of your liking or of your fancy, of your interest is, isn't on the list, feel free to let us know. Uh, Thegreenado at gmail.com, of course. Uh, but Jason, why don't you uh, kick it off with a pick from what I think is a pretty solid list of what we kind of haven't covered enough in the last few months. Yeah, it is an amazing list, and I'm I'm wishing that we could see more of these. So a mm-hmm. lot, of, you know, most of these items we, we haven't even touched, and, and it's, so it's a little hard to kind of do a, a review sort of thing. But I'm I'm impressed with 
a number of these. One of them that I'm not sure I would own, but I think was a really neat and kind of bold release was that Mito Ocean Star Decompression Timer. 1961, yeah. they called it. That's the this official cool. name. Um, this is a <laughs> just a, a really funky watch that uh, um, is known as the, the Rainbow Diver. Um, I, I had to double check because, you know, smarter people than me said that, that colorful dials on watches were really didn't come out till the late 60s. Well, this one uh, is a tribute to a 1961 watch that Mido released that has this funky rainbow-hued uh, decompression scale in the middle of the dial. And the original had more of an engraved steel bezel. And what they did with this reissue is, is fitted it with more of a standard, you know, white, white uh, markings on a black uh, insert bezel. Um, and they pair it with this uh, mesh bracelet. Um, it's, it's just cool. And I think it's popular. Yeah. I think people really like this watch. I, I, I've never really been that keen about the vintage version. You know, they'd pop up for sale and people, oh, you know, they go for a lot of money and people really mm-hmm. want them. But it wasn't really my cup of tea. But the more I look at it, um, it's it's a really sharp watch and it's very affordable. It's like twelve fifty, I think, is the price. So, yeah, I'm not sure offhand what the price is because I'm on Mito's website uh, in Canadian dollars. No, I'm looking at the U.S. website. Yeah, twelve fifty, pretty incredible. All right, yeah. Well, yeah. that makes the Canadian price of thirteen seventy five pretty good. Yeah, they're, they're they have not adjusted correctly for uh, <laughs> for uh, currency. But yeah. for for those who are listening and don't know the watch we're talking about, it's it's not going to be hard for you to find. <laughs> it's got all sorts of color on the dial, certainly, but it's 40.5 millimeters wide, like the Seiko uh, that I am so in love with. Uh, it has kind of a, it's 21 millimeter lugs, which oh, it, yeah. especially if you like to change your straps a lot, it's going to be a little bit of a bummer. The one millimeter's never been a deal breaker for me, but I don't know that I've ever kept long term a watch with non standard lug sizing, like 18, 20, 22. Uh, they don't, of course, nobody, no brands do, uh, no big brands do list the uh, lug to lug, but the case thickness is 13.4, which is totally acceptable. It's a 200 meter dive watch, a sapphire crystal, and then it uses Mido's version of the ETA uh, CO7 621, which means you get uh, an 80 hour power reserve. Uh, which is pretty sweet, yeah. And uh, and it also uh, the, the other one to talk about because Mito's done a bunch of work recently on the Ocean Star lineup, which includes this limited edition 1961 decompression timer, yeah. But is not at all limited to that. The other one that I think is worth taking a peek at is the um, the Ocean Star tribute. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I think at some point we should have a chat about newer GMT watches because they also make an Ocean Star GMT, which has a true kind of flyer style GMT with an independently adjusted hour hand, Mm -hmm. uh, local jumping hour hand, but it's uh, quite a bit larger. And and, and I think it's one thing, it's cool that that maybe Ed has developed this movement, and I assume that also means that it's going to pop up in, uh, you know, maybe uh, Rados and uh, Tissos and that sort of thing, and we'll keep an eye on that. But we're aware of this thing. It's just, you know, the the new Ocean Star GMT, I believe, is 44 millimeters wide, Mm. which just kind of instantly makes it something that I'm not that interested in, even even if it does have the movement that I kind of dig. You know, they're 44 millimeters. They're only 13.2 millimeters, 13.3 millimeters thick. And they're certainly very handsome watches, but I would love to see it basically in the same format they established with the watch I just mentioned, the Ocean Star Tribute, um, which I think is a 990 Swiss francs, if I if I am doing my math correctly. I'm seeing 1250 Canadian. It comes in black or I'm blue. 1150 US. Yeah, good price. Oh, there you go. 1150. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so 1150 US. This again is 40.5 millimeters, 21 millimeter lugs, 200 meter water resistance, and a case height of a little less than 13 and a half millimeters. And I, I think it, the, the thing that stands out here for me is, one, the bracelet looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's one of these really fine multi-links, yeah. almost a mesh bracelet. But I think the watch itself is gorgeous. The day date, uh, you get the 80-hour power reserve. I think the blue looks killer. It's got a, an orange second hand. Yeah, they kept it nicely restrained. I mean, there's very little text on the dial. Um, it kind of reminds me a bit of the, the Doxa Sub 200 that kind of came Absolutely. out earlier this year. It's the, kind of in that same, that same feel, same price range, same size. Um, but I... I would argue this is sharper. I don't know. I like it. I really like it. Uh, yeah, one. I mean, it's, there's less color options, but mm-hmm. it's also, it's a millimeter and a half smaller, which is considerable. Yeah. Uh, the Doxy being 42 millimeters is a, is a solid watch and one that I like, but the, there's something re- that I really dig about this Mito. Um, I think it's, uh, it's just, and it's also fun to see brands like 
like Mito kind of operate at this at the, like at this price point that they know really well. Yeah. But in in a space that that is a little bit more open to more enthusiasts, a forty millimeter dive watch. Yeah. And uh, and it has a little bit of vintage styling, but it's not too overdone. Certainly on the blue, the the loom and the markings are all white. Uh, which is pretty cool. I, I think that they, uh, I think they did a good job with this. I, I'd be excited to see them take this case and put the GMT movement in it. I think you'd have a pretty compelling watch at, you know, less than fifteen hundred bucks at that point. Uh, that wouldn't kind of really have any peers. Kind of like I said about the Black Bay GMT back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that just a strong functionality and, and kind of ready to go. So uh, all t- all told, uh, well done, Mito. Uh, would be uh, would be the, the kind of tone right tone from this one uh, you know between the um, between the the decompression timer limited edition and this Ocean Star tribute and in some ways that GMT the Ocean Star GMT I think they're doing really well and I, I'm you know it's always nice to see more brands making dive watches that I think people would actually like to buy um, especially because you know Mito is not a brand you see super commonly in the North American space yeah. Uh, so this is great. I, I, uh, I would say well done to them. Uh, let me see for the next one. Let's stick in a you know eh, similar ish. Let's see what we got here. Actually, let's let's swing for the fences. Um, <laughs> did you see this uh, the Bathyscaph Macaran LE? I'm probably not saying that right. I, I did. Um, this is that green dial version of the 38 millimeter. Yeah, uh, and a green bezel. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I, I have to say. I mean, of course, okay. I have I have a Bathyscaphe, um, the Hodinkee edition. Um, I think what's always troubled me about the Bathyscaphe watches in general is these tiny little markers, mm-hmm. and I'm not as keen on that handset. The green is cool. I mean, I, I like it. I like a good green watch. Yeah, I think for me, it's the color. I, I wrote this one up. I do think that the 38 millimeter, you know, no date option is their best one, but mm-hmm. that the the markers do look kind of weird. Yeah, a little bit too small. Yeah. Um, and it could be it's it could be one of those things. I, I don't remember the last time I saw one of these this size in person. Mm-hmm. It might simply be better in person, um, where you have so so much of the ratio of the marker is the metal surround, right? Which may or may not show up that well in photos. Versus the you know the white of the luminous element is pretty much a fixed thing. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? But I do really like the green, and I, I like the project it's supporting. Yeah, uh, you know it's a it's an LE of fifty pieces, so it, I don't actually feel that bad talking about such an expensive watch. Uh, but a thousand dollars of each one is going to the Macaran Protection Society, which mm-hmm. is a nonprofit that works in protecting uh, great hammerhead populations in French Polynesia. And uh, I, I think it's a real I think it's a really cool looking thing. There's something about the color, the loom, and the brightest tone of the green. Yeah, in the images that they shared. Uh, that I thought looked pretty cool, and uh, and I, and I like that uh, a company kind of as big as Blancpain in terms of um, market share, not even market share, like just mental share. Like Blancpain is a, a high end watch brand by anybody's measure. Yeah, is operating in you know French Polynesian great hammerhead uh, protection. It's, <laughs> it's, right. it's fun. Yeah, and and you know it's got a display case back. It's got a fantastic movement. It's if if for whatever reason you're exceedingly interested in, in seeing one of these, uh, getting one on your wrist, they are fifteen grand. Yeah. So not the normal sphere of what we talk about on the show, um, but I think an, an interesting thing and and a nice kind of, you know, we've got some high and some low happening in this episode for sure. Right. Uh, but I think this is a pretty cool watch. I love uh, the idea of it, you know, a ceramic case dive watch uh, that has these sorts of, uh, the, the, the green is just, uh, I, I think it's the green. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. I love it. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum um, with kind of a favorite, of, uh, favorite brand of ours, and that is Scurfa. Um, oh yeah, you know we had Paul Skirfield on the show last year, the year before. He's a saturation commercial diver uh, out of the UK, and he started this little watch brand um, in his downtime. And uh, every year he releases what he calls the MS edition. So the MS twenty is the one we're talking about here that came out earlier this year, and it, it sold out. I mean, it's it's gone. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have gotten my hands on one of these. Um, this is a titanium case, uh, 40 millimeters again, you know, the magic number that we seem to be talking about a lot this year. Um, yep. Looks so good on a, on a NATO strap. He does provide it with uh, a rubber strap, which I've seen they actually have for sale on our friend UTE Watches or, or formerly Toxic NATO. He he partnered with Scurfa on these rubber straps, and, and they're really superb rubber straps if, if anyone's looking for a good one. Uh, 500 meter water resistance, you know, these, these watches are just, they look like an old CWC or they look like, um, you know, any of the old 
military spec, which is what the MS stands for, military spec divers uh, for the Royal Navy, and uh, just just really superb. He does um, he does mainly quartz movements, which I think for what he's making is perfect. You know, this is a, oh, yeah. a proper you know tool watch. You can you can bang it up and you you know legitimately take it uh, diving. He's taken it in the the dive habitat when he when he goes to work in the North Sea, and um, these are exceedingly tested watches by the man himself um, and, and one of the few watches that probably has a justifiable helium release valve on it so i agree yeah yeah and i mean we we had we had uh, paul on episode 90 if you want to go back and listen to that like jason had mentioned and, and since then i've been keeping like a closer eye and i saw this and i was like oh man do i need a <laughs> do i need a tight another dive watch right? yeah i i like these but it would be like a good portion that would just be wanting to support paul and what he's up to yeah uh yeah. so i i think one eventually i, I gotta i do really like their um the d1 500 which mm-hmm. is a, has a yellow dial oh yeah, uh, I yeah. Do, you know i don't have a yellow dialed watch and it's a steel style bezel up which i think is pretty cool yeah um yeah. That, yeah, he makes some great stuff. It was a fantastic interview uh, and a fascinating guy. And like you said, the, o- the only guy who I- I'm okay with seeing the uh, helium escape <laughs> valve on, right. the, on the watch. Uh, you know, it's not, not there for marketing. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's pick another one here. Um, well, yeah, why don't we get to uh, another watch that, uh, you know, there are versions that are, that are both colorful and not. The, the new Doxa 300. So this is kind of a big one. This is one that uh, actually, you know, was announced after we recorded the previous episode otherwise it definitely would have been something that we chatted about then um because obviously jason and i have have waxed uh, poetic and otherwise about the uh our love of the 50th anniversary models uh of which this is essentially another edition of that's not limited right I mean, you could almost um, say we've done hands-on with this <laughs> because we both yeah, yeah. i mean th- th- they're not going to be huge difference uh, right. i i agree with that in um in concept i have the the list of what is different right here oh yeah uh so for this new sub 300 cosc which is what they're calling it and and in to be clear what we're talking about is the difference between the new sub 300 and the sub 350th anniversary editions from 2017 uh so this new model has an orange fish on the crown regardless of dial color uh, metric system versus the imperial system on the bezel. Uh, you get uh, super luminova uh, C3 versus uh, what was called uh, light old radium uh, in colorway. So it wasn't a C3. Theoretically, that means the uh, loom will be better on these new models, which is great because it's not exactly fantastic on the 50th. Um, new typography in terms of the Doxa logo where it says automatic, where it says 300 in the model name. Uh, a change of color on the seconds and minute hand, and then uh, a new rubber strap and uh, some new colors, including the navy blue, the yellow, and the turquoise. And I believe the Shark Hunter gets a different hour hand, uh, which uh, is, isn't on this list here, but I believe that's uh, that's the case. So that's the list from Doxa. Um, we get we get a fair number of uh, messages asking us to tell you the difference between one one Doxa or another. And I mean, while I think that maybe highlights a problem. Uh, in terms of the communication level at their at their lineup, uh, the big thing is you know this is essentially the the an extension of what was previously a limited edition model and and I you know Jason and I both own these models and I, I guess it's kind of a bummer but I don't I guess I didn't buy that I didn't buy it because it was limited yeah but but I guess if you did that's going to be I, like you have a you have sort of a a problem I bought it because it was my favorite Doxa right. Uh, with the with the uh, the Sea Rambler and, and have been very happy with it and, and it doesn't really bother me that they're making more they cost the same money so it's not like I paid 500 bucks more than I had to or something like that um, but yeah I think if you bought it because it was limited uh, then I could see you having an issue with that but I, I would also remind you that like this is fairly common among brands that do limited editions uh, you know uh, Grand Seiko does this pretty frequently where they'll put out a le and then a little while later they'll put out something that's not an le that's pretty similar Mm -hmm. uh in this case there are there are little changes and and more dial colors um i still i still want to live in a world where we have doxa so i wish them nothing but success with uh with their lineup and i also think uh you know jason and i talked about it when the when the watch first was announced uh it's a watch they have to make right uh it's basically the the distilled it's the black coffee Mm-hmm. Uh, on the menu, mm-hmm. it's the one, the thing that almost everyone who sits down at the counter is going to want uh, to experience what what they're about. 
Um, beyond that, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I, I guess I kind of feel for people who are upset about the the LE, not LE thing, but I, I'm not that worried about it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what they could have done differently. And I, I, while I do feel for, for people with the LE that bought it because of that, um, I, yeah. I also am happy for the people that always wanted one of those and, and because they were so limited, now they can actually get one. I, I don't know what the solution would have been from Doxa if maybe the only thing they could have done is release all the other colors except for the, the three colors of the original. Um, you know, the yellow, the, the turquoise or aquamarine, they're calling it, um, the Caribbean, the blue, which I think is a really beautiful color uh, on yeah, this watch. Yeah, I'm about that one. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's by far their most desirable model. I think Doxa has uh, kind of a limited space in which to play. I think they might be, I don't want to say they painted themselves into a corner, but like there is only so much you can do with, with mm-hmm. their format of dive watch with that bezel and that handset um so you know i'm not sure where they'll go next but uh there is a fair amount of confusion around the different uh watches they have they've got a you know the the sub 300 the sub 300t the the sub 1500 and the sub 4000 and, and the sub 200 and i think they all kind of start to blend together if you're not really dialed into the, the nuances between them but uh yeah i would the, encourage the you that... to just go visit their website and just compare the specs uh yep um, so the one the one that we get a lot is what's the difference between the 50th anniversary and the 300T or now the 300 and the 300T. And in many ways, I think it's easier just to think of a 300T as being a 1200. Yeah, yeah. The big difference is the water resistance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a slightly different case shape. So it wears a bit bigger, it wears a bit thicker. Um, and it uses a flat crystal, so it doesn't have quite the same sort of vintage effect. Mm-hmm. And then if you pull it up on your computer and just look at the two dials, the dials are a little bit different. The markers are a bit different. The colorways are kind of massaged in a different direction. They are absolutely very similar watches. Uh, but also to, to all the people who have written in to ask us what the difference is, like it, it's pretty clearly stated on the website. Um, you know, the, the big thing that, that even Doxa has said with this 300, uh, the new series, uh, is that the, the case shape, you know, is a little bit thinner and a little bit more curved. Mm-hmm. And it sits on the wrist a little bit better than you might find with something like a 300T. But obviously with the T, you're getting vastly more water resistance. So it is it is kind of up to you. It's a little bit more modern of an expression of Doxa's sort of look, while still, at least from a website level, looking like essentially the exact same watch. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I would say with, with all that, if, if uh, again, and if you have questions with it, uh, you can always send them to us. Uh, I can't I, I can offer a lot more difference between the two at this point. I've, I have not handled the T or the new 300. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the 50th anniversaries, but it is something I wanted to cover in this kind of list of summer dive watches because I think the 300 is a, a fairly notable mm-hmm. um, announcement for, for Doxa heads. But with uh, with what we've just said out of the way, uh, we can move on. Yeah. What are you feeling? Well, you know, there's this watch that I get questions about a lot, and I'm sure you do too. It's this the Yema, Yema Superman oh, 63. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on our list. Um, I have never handled uh, a Yema in insofar as the, the current generation of ownership of that brand. I have this old Yema Bipole Duopoly Antarctica watch from the late 80s, which is more of kind of a quirky vintage piece. But, you know, since the brand was relaunched I don't know, a few years back, they've been kind of cranking out some interesting dive watches. And, and I mm-hmm. think the latest one is this Superman Heritage 63 which is a limited edition for their pricing at eleven ninety nine US. Um, you know, it, it just feels like there are a lot of watches from, uh, you know, that that draw inspiration from this early sixties time, all kind of around the similar size. This one is thirty nine millimeters, so again, that that real sweet spot, thirteen millimeters thick. Uh, the dial looks very similar to another watch that we love, which is the Oris Diver sixty five. Yeah, especially those, uh, you know, key hour markers. Right, right. So, yeah. you know, who knows? I'm sure there were several brands back then that were doing similar stuff. But uh, it's it's mm-hmm. a sharp-looking watch. I just can't comment at all about, you know, the quality or, or anything else uh, with this one. Yeah, I've had... Um, so way, way, way back, we're talking the better part of 12, 13, 14 years ago, I had what was called a Yema Sea Spider, mm. oh, uh, yeah. which is a pr- pretty cool watch, one that I really liked. I had it for a little while. It was one of the few times where I made an absolute killing on a watch as well. Huh. Uh, it's a Seiko-based watch in terms of its tech and where the crown is, the the movement. Hmm. Um, but otherwise, it was produced by Yem. It had this kind of like complex dial design. I had a blue dial example, 
And I remember getting really excited about them when I first found them on the poor man's watch form way back in the day. Yeah. And I bought one. I had it for a while. Really liked it. It was just kind of like this nice, small, um, almost like a weird blend of citizen aesthetic and uh, Seiko. Huh. It's I, I liked it. And then I, I, it had a kind of a twin crown design, which was cool. And uh, I... I listed it on watch you seek and it sold for you know four times or five oh times what i what i bought it for back oh. in the day which it wasn't a lot of money yeah uh <laughs> it was you know less than the cost of a new yema superman 63 i think is probably what i sold it for but it was just more than i had paid for it and i remember thought like oh yeah wow i'm you know i'm, I'm on to something here and then i never saw another one i've never seen another i, I don't think they were that <laughs> that common and then back in the the watch report days, I remember they they sent a couple watches, or their PR agency in the U.S. sent a couple watches my way, and I wasn't super impressed with them. They sent some, and a couple were okay, and a couple weren't, mm. just in terms of like general build quality, fit fitment issues, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um. And th- honestly, that experience has kind of led me to like not hunt the brand down a lot. Yeah. Um. But the the Superman sixty three seems to have a very good kind of like crowd opinion. Hmm. Uh, they, they come up on watch you see you see them uh, I think they're a good looking watch certainly so if, if if the opportunity comes up I'd be happy to check one out uh, but I, I knew that it would eventually be the kind of thing where we've already gotten you know some messages about it and if we didn't bring it up on this episode it would be uh, more messages yeah yeah I'm just kind of looking through their their features and so this one uses the the swiss uh, salida movement when I, mean, I think recent ones have also used a miyota movement um so this one's got mm. the swiss movement and then it's it's got this slightly domed sapphire bezel which is is neat um and, is neat. and the one feature that is kind of distinctive about yama divers that i've seen is this bezel lock mechanism which is at three o'clock it's like this little frame that locks down on the bezel so it can't be turned and you know over the years there have been so many of these kind of bezel locking gadgets that that brands have used and this is kind of their trademark one but it's kind of strange that you have to actually unscrew the the crown in order to release that lock <laughs> from from the bezel i mean certainly not weird. something you want to be doing underwater but uh yeah you know i think it's more of a historical nod than than anything functional so yeah and then if, if, if you end up on their website you'll notice that like the the heritage 63 the superman 63 is only one dial variation they have they have a handful of others so if you don't want one that kind of has the the oris style 12 six and nine markers uh you know just the standard heritage has a pretty sharp dial and, and a nice look as well but uh yeah uh, eventually i'm sure we'll get to get a chance to see those in person yeah um another one i haven't seen in person but uh, i can't decide if the design is warming up uh for me at all is the the new breitling super ocean heritage 57 i think by the time this episode comes out breitling will have announced some new watches hmm um and uh and and you know around the geneva watch days and the rest of it so i I figured it was worth i I remember these were big when they came out they have that cool kind of funky rainbow limited edition one yeah um i yeah i haven't quite decided uh how i warm up to the the markers on the bezel Mm. Uh, i know that they are you know a direct inspire inspiration from um you know a model from 1957 What, what do you think on these i like i like all of them except the rainbow one i mean i think you know hats off to them for trying that and i think you know that's just personal taste but in terms of the aesthetics of the standard black or blue dial and bezel versions um i've always been a fan i like that really kind of concave artsy looking markers and the big bold pointer hand for the hour and then that concave bezel is just uh, it's so cool i mean i i've liked that on the the rotto captain cook as well but uh yeah, great. My yeah, only quibble is, you know, why did they why limit it to 100 meters? I mean, you know, are they trying to make it more of a less of a true dive watch and kind of more of mm-hmm. a surf piece? That's kind of how they were marketing it a little bit. But like, is it that hard to make a crown screw down and and make it uh, 200 meters? I I don't know. But you know, that's a small thing. I mean, most people don't yeah don't care about that. But I love the no, look. I, I would I would agree with that. They're 42 millimeters, uh, about uh, 10 millimeters thick, which is great for a dive watch and, yeah. and maybe that's why it's 100 meters instead of 200 i don't know yeah um I, 200 would have made sense to me certainly uh i i'd love i just i really love uh you, you scroll through some of the photos the way the light hits those bezels because mm-hmm. uh, it's never the same yeah they're very they're very sort of dynamic and uh, and some guys i follow on instagram have them and, and they seem to be loving them and the, the blue one i like quite a bit and, and especially on leather it's a 100 meter dive watch so why not yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think it's a cool thing. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it ports, if they port it to a smaller size like they have with other Super Ocean Heritage. Um, right. But I think forty-two is probably right. And, you know, it's so yeah. much bezel, 
in terms of size. I, mean, I, I wonder how it wears compared to something like a Doxa uh, with, with that big, you know, that super wide bezel and smaller dial. Um, yeah. yeah, that'll be a fun one to see eventually when, uh, when you know, scenarios permit. Uh, but a, yeah. a cool watch nonetheless. I just, uh, I, I think it's one of those things I might have to see in person, especially for those markers, those kind of yeah. U, the UFO style markers. Right. Well, we have a couple more on the list um, that we probably don't need to go in too much detail about because they've been covered fairly extensively uh, on Hodinkee and we've talked a little bit about them. I, I had written up a review of the Carries Fort limited edition Oris. This is one that I, I put it on the list because I want to see it. I think it looks cool. Yeah. Um, beautiful watch. Uh, I had it uh, here for a couple of weeks earlier this summer and, and like I said, reviewed it for Hodinkee. I mean, the, the Aquas isn't my favorite uh, Oris dive watch uh, format, but the Oris, the, the Aquas GMT, I adore. Yeah. I mean, I love this watch. I remember I when they first came out with the Aquas GMT, I was just wowed by it. I love the clever kind of internal... Uh, 24-hour ring on the on the inside of the dial with the hand, and then they they also have the the rotating 24-hour bezel two-tone. This one is black and blue. That the dial, you know, Oris does such a beautiful job with blue on their dials, and um, the one I had was on a bracelet, but it also comes in that really great supple rubber strap. But you know, of course, you can't use any NATOs or, or aftermarket straps given their kind of funky uh, narrow mm-hmm. um, strap attachment mechanism, but. Um, Great watch, you know we we love Oris and and this one particularly was a real highlight for for this summer for me. Yeah, and the other one that I think kind of got maybe a little bit drowned by other watches, other watch news and everything is that Holstein LE, the fully bronze chronograph. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I have one here which I'll, I'll be photographing and, and doing a hands on, so I'll, I'll save my you know full thoughts for uh, for that eventual post. But I, I think it's such a cool thing to just go full bronze, like just lean into the effect of the bronze. <laughs> right. The one I have, I think, has been loaned to a couple other people, so it already has some kind of patina forming on it. I'm giving it some time in my environment to to increase that for the photos. Yeah. And I, I think it's such a good looking watch. It's it's a big watch, but I think it's big kind of like with a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think it's big just because that was the design brief was like, we want to make a big watch cause people want big watches or something like that. Uh, I think it's big, but it wears well. And, uh, I love the, the matching dial and, and the kind of all, all around gold tone of it is, uh, is super fun. And then, yeah, a, a limited edition is pretty fun. And, uh, I am excited to, uh, to kind of spend more time with that once a, a few of these other kind of projects clear off the slate. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the Diver 65 chronograph mm-hmm. look anyway, and uh, aesthetically, the full bronze isn't quite my thing. But I would love to see it age. I would love to see that the whole you know the whole bracelet, the mm-hmm. case, the bezel, everything turn kind of a funky blue green uh, hue after wearing it. Um, that'll be really fun to see. Yeah, and, and then not you know not not trying to slow the pace at all. Let's keep keep moving to another watch. I think the the other one we've got on the list is one neither of us have seen, but is also bronze, very bronze, and that's the uh, Baltic Aquascaf in uh, in full bronze. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a fun one. I mean, Baltic. Uh, I think you've spent some time with with the steel version of this watch, correct? Yeah, and and I remember meeting um, Etienne in Basel a couple of years ago when he was kind of. I don't think he had launched the divers yet. He still had just the chronographs and. Um, really like what he's doing. He has a real eye for for design, and for sure. and and this is this is really sharp. And he's got it on kind of a tropic style strap. And um, again, you know, it's funny because I'm not a full gold guy. And and when you look at a really bronzy watch, it, it can look like a rose gold or something. But um, I, I just love the concept of bronze in general. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a neat material that uh, um, this is great. And and I don't know the. I guess uh, I'm looking at the website, and it's 625 euros and that translates into what looks like $739.68 US, um, which for a full bronze watch is a, a really neat price, really good price for that. Yeah, I think it's a great looking thing. I also think you know they recently did a version with a steel 12-hour bezel that's super rad, well, very much in my wheelhouse. But the 39 millimeters, uh, 10 millimeters thick, uh, just 47 millimeters lug-to-lug with drilled lugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is like an enthusiast brand for, like, they get it. They, they, they hit yeah. those little points that other brands you kind of have to trade like playing cards. Sometimes you get the hand you want, sometimes you don't. Uh, with these Baltic stuff, you're just you're buying from someone who's, who's making them because they just love a very kind of specific thing yeah. uh, within the watch space. And, the, and they're popular for that reason. I, I think the, the bronze one is a great looking watch. The blue and the bronze work so well together. Uh, the pricing seems super fair to me. And I, I was 
pretty impressed with the with the steel one that I had. Um, oh man, a better part of a year and a half ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know. I, p- I picked up on eBay. There was a Skin Diver magazine from October of '67 or '68, mm-hmm. and uh, I bought it because it has an article in it about dive watches. It was this ex- exhaustive review of all the dive watches available that year. Wow. Um, and looking through the list and looking at all the photos that they had in this list in this article. There were so many brands that I'd never heard of, all these little kind of, I suppose, the micro brands of that day. And when I was looking at that, I thought, you know, this is this is like the era we live in now. I mean, you, you wonder, you know, Baltic and Yema and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nothing's changed. I mean, there, there were a lot of small brands making really cool watches back then. Um, and that's what I like about a brand like Baltic. I think they're kind of in that same spirit, making something affordable that someone can still go and use. And, and this one's great. I mean, 39 millimeters, 12 mil- millimeters thick. That's so wearable for so many people. Yeah, um, for sure. And with that great design. So, yeah. yeah. Well done with uh, with the uh, Baltic. And then for anyone who snapped one up, uh, good on you. I'm sure they're a lot of fun. Uh, the last one that we have on the list, and like we said, this isn't like an exhaustive list. It's just what we came up with. Uh, let us know in an email if you think we really missed out on something or there's something we should take a look at. But uh, the last one on the list is kind of an obvious one. Uh, you know, I kind of put my flag in the sand with the SPB uh, 143, but this is the the new Willard, the SPB 151 or 153. Seiko went real hard when it came to these watches. They made a small watch that is like kind of ready for anyone, that, that which we've talked a lot about. And then the uh, this new Willard, you know, they, they went for a kind of a specific thing. Um, and I, for me, I, this is one I haven't seen in person. Cole uh, Pennington, who we've had on the show, my our colleague at Hodinkee, he has one and uh, and is absolutely loving it. And it looks great on his wrist and he's taking it spear fishing and other really cool stuff, uh, you know, real coal stuff, uh, which, I, which I like. And I, I'm basically kind of waiting for his review yeah. Um, because I know that he's a, he's a, a 6105 guy. He's a vintage Seiko guy, especially when it comes to the dive watches. So I think he's the right guy to to kind of take it through its paces and, and provide some perspective outside of the fact that the watch is somehow connected to a movie that a lot of people have never seen yeah. uh, and don't understand why, why anyone would call it the Willard or, or otherwise. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, from a bird's eye view, I think it looks very similar to an SRP 777 or the the new um, King Turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, when you're talking about the price point that doubles uh, the right. MSRP, um, that's why I want to wait and hear what Cole has to say about it. If it, if they kind of hit the same points that, that the SPB 143 and, and that line does, then I get it. Um, but I think that needs to be framed by someone who has you know, kind of a, a direct understanding of, of where this watch came from and, and why maybe some of these changes were made from the original design. Yeah, um, this is one of those watches when it was announced, I was convinced I was going to... Yeah, you were hot on it. I was going to place an order. And then the Safarni came, which is another one we don't really need to talk about because we've talked about quite a bit since I bought one, but uh, that's another one from this summer. Um, but looking at this one, every time I look at it um, and, and think to myself, should I get it? And then I, I put on my SRP turtle and I'm like, it's so close. I mean, the, the, the vibe, the feel of it is, is just so similar. And I'm like, eh, you know, I, and, and to be honest, when I look at this, I don't know that it's got the exact same uh, case shape as the, as the 6105. Um, there's something slightly awkward about it. It's a little fat from side to side that I don't get that same vibe when I look at a vintage 6105. Maybe I'm wrong, but, uh. Um, and on wrist, you know, certainly different than, than press photos, but, uh, yeah. I'm also waiting for Cole's review to get the real world, uh, lowdown on it. Obviously with, just like with the SPB 143 and then the stuff we talked about with them, the handset, I think they nailed it. Yeah. Um, and the markers look great. The green is so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of it. Yeah. Let's just wait for Cole, see where he lands. And, and if it's something that ends up being kind of fun, you know, uh, maybe there's going to be some rivalry between one four three guys and one five one and one five three guys. Yeah, Who right. knows? Maybe we'll have Cole back on to argue it out or, or yeah. chat more about uh, the, this sort of interesting realm of thousand to twelve hundred dollars Seikos. That uh, maybe this is a space where they'll start really working, and yeah. uh, and I think they've been operating there for a little while. But with these these two latest kind of model runs, um, I think they're they're really finding a stride. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, that's everything on the list. So we went from you know six or seven hundred dollar uh, dive watches up to fifteen thousand dollar limited editions <laughs> for hammerheads. 
Right. Like I've said a couple times, if you think we missed something, if there's something we should try and include in a further chat or, or something like that, but by all means, the, the graynado at gmail.com, we, we can't get to everything on every episode, but we, uh, we don't want to leave any hanging if there's something you want to know about or hear more about. Uh, and certainly if you picked up any of these watches, especially if you have any direct experience with the uh, Mito Ocean Star stuff, let us know. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit of hands-on um about that stuff uh especially from you know dive watch nerds like uh, like many of you who are listening that's uh that would be awesome uh i will certainly follow up with the with a look at that oris holstein in the next little while and uh and yeah thanks uh thanks very much for listening i think it's probably time for some final notes yeah i think so yeah my, my mine this week comes from i like this a good good friend of ours yeah. uh, zach pina who goes by dagbert on instagram just an all-around Good guy and a great follow. If you aren't following him already, he does oh, a little yeah, writing for follow. a blog to watch and these uh, avid cyclists, etc. Um, another guy we we probably should have on the show sometime because he's just really fun. He'd be great to have on. I agree. So uh, it's you know it's been a weird summer for all of us. We're all picking up strange new hobbies. Gashani's doing sourdough bread. We're biking more. We're gardening. Um, one of the things we've picked up is a little bit of bird watching, um, mainly just in the backyard here. I put up a a feeder um, a few months ago, and we're just getting. A lot of new birds in the yard, which has been fun. And some evenings I just sit out back with a pair of binoculars kind of on our patio and just kind of keep an eye on the feeder. And we've gotten, you know, goldfinches and chickadees and blue jays and cardinals and everything else. And um, <laughs> so I was I was talking to Zach last week and telling him about this uh, kind of newfound hobby of bird watching. And, and he and uh, his significant other uh, have really gotten into it as well. They they live out in Northern California, and so they go out to the coast, and they're actually, you know, glassing seabirds in the cliffs, and um, you know, just doing hikes specifically looking for birds. And he said, "Well, do you have the the Autobahn Bird app yet?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Oh, you got to get it." So I I downloaded the Autobahn app on my iPhone, and it's available for Android as well. Um, and this app not only helps you identify species and it actually you know pinpoints your location and identifies birds that are known to live in your area um, but you can also enter your own sightings um, you know and huh. pinpoint exactly where you saw them and it creates this sort of community where you know you want to kind of see what's been seen in your area I, I did this yesterday and you know there's like these different species of hawk and, uh, you know, water birds and bald eagles and, um, you know, these kind of orioles and exotics that they're migrating through here. Um, and it's, it's kind of addictive. It's, it's really fun. I turned my mom onto it as well and they live near a lake and so they get kingfishers and loons and ducks and things and it's all in there. And it's, uh, (laughs) what's really fun is they've under each, in the species guide under each bird type, they, um, uh, they'll have audio recordings of their different calls and they're like really good audio quality. So I, I'll be sitting out in back and there was a, a goldfinch sitting on our bird feeder and I started playing the the different calls for the goldfinch and Gishani like nudged me like, you know, telling me it was cruel to, you know, play all these like mating calls and territorial <laughs> warning calls yeah, and yeah, things yeah. and confusing these poor birds. But uh, it's it, it's been a blast. It's free, uh, which is always good. And uh you know, if, if you want to kick your birding up a, a notch, get yourself a pair of uh, cheap binoculars and, and, and the Audubon app and have some fun. This is this is such a great idea. And uh, I, I know that uh, I can hear birds all the time where I yeah. live, but where my parents live, they have a, a nice big backyard and they've really set up a space for birds. Yeah. And you can sit there and like, I don't know, I know a blue jay, right? I know a <laughs> cardinal, like the easy yeah. ones. And yeah. and I know a lot of blue jays because we used to have a cat and this, you know, this is the house where I grew up and, uh, yeah. and they used to just, those blue jays used to gang up <laughs> on that poor cat uh, and he, he wouldn't go in the backyard. He wouldn't go outside of the awning because uh, they'd, oh, be yeah. wa- they'd be waiting for him. Um, but I bet you my parents would absolutely love this. You know, they've got, they've got a ton oh, yeah. of different birds down there. Uh, they've got a resident rabbit. They've got, uh, they've got, oh, yeah, nice. they've got some, they've got a good thing going. And I, I think if you can do it, you know, I, I have a real obsession uh, or not obsession. I have a huge fondness for uh, hummingbirds, especially, mm, yeah. um, what a special animal, but, uh, they can be super fun to watch. And it's, it's certainly more relaxing than uh, watching your phone screen. Although I guess you gotta, you gotta click in occasionally to use the app. Um, <laughs> right, it's, right. uh, that's a, that's a good pick. I, it, it would be fun to have Zach on to see, especially like for some tips on like, I, I don't know what I could tell you to use for 
what the what the the good value is in binoculars, for example. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he could talk about that. Oh, and, one would uh, assume. Yeah. He's been doing a lot of photography too, so you know, an, maybe he's got he's a, an a special long lens. Yeah, yeah. an yeah, incredibly yeah. talented photographer and a he, an avid cycler. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, cyclist. Goodness sakes, James. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he'd be super fun to have on. We should try and make that happen sometime in the next little while. Zach, if you're listening, uh, let me know. Get in touch. Yeah, check right. check WhatsApp. I probably sent you a message. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to continue on in the bird path with my pick, <laughs> oddly enough, um, uh, but a different sort of bird. And this is a story from thedrive.com. And, and some of you are probably already guessing what I'm about to say. It's a story about the SR-71 Blackbird, uh, you know, one of my favorite things. And yeah. I actually say this is a funny thing because I saved this to, to my pocket back in towards the end of March when it was published. And uh. because of the title, I figured it was going to be like 100 words or 200 words about how this almost happened. And, and it's the SR-71 was almost brought back for the global war on terror. Huh. And actually what it ended up being was like kind of an in-depth look at kind of how the planes were retired. Oh. And how when they decided in 2001 to, to, to do a little bit of research into whether or not they could be brought back to help augment the use of satellites and the uh, U-2s, yeah. these various tail numbers were kind of brought out of, you know, mothballs. And, and, and in some cases, you know, were going to be sent off to displays. And, and they were, you know, deciding whether or not they should uh, fly them again and how much it would cost and notoriously expensive and awesome airplane. But there was way more to this story than I expected. It's one of those things where sometimes if I see SR-71 or, or A-12 or, or Oxcart or Blackbird or whatever, I'll, I'll just throw it right in my pocket and then eventually get to it. And this took me months because I thought it was going to be a three or four paragraph story about how they considered it and then it was too expensive. Yeah. And it's way more than that. So I, I highly recommend it if you're if you're into the uh, the kind of uh, nerd level of uh, of the SR seventy one program at large. Uh, I found this to be pretty interesting. Uh, there's some stuff in there I had never read about before. Oh yeah, looks like some cool photos. And some video. great photos yeah, for sure. Into this. Yeah. yeah, the drive has been doing some interesting stuff lately. They've been doing a lot with satellite photography, which mm-hmm. is uh, yeah, yeah, which has been which really cool. uh, well, especially yeah. when they tell you we're like, oh, three of these planes are at this Air Force base now. And yeah, it, it, yeah, they've got they've got a, 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 a this this post that I'm talking about was written by Stephen Walker, uh, who does some great stuff for them under their uh, the War Zone uh, header, yeah. uh, which is great and and super interesting. But the stuff about plane movements or ships and that sort of thing, and all, all informed by you know publicly available satellite photography, is uh, is pretty yeah. interesting, for yeah. sure. But yeah, so that's a, a, an interesting kind of end note to both the show and to the SR seventy one program. Yeah, good show. I mean, I think a good kind of bookend on the summer, on a summer of uh, a lot of dive watches. Um, yeah, and you know, we're at the end of August, but that doesn't mean you can't jump off a dock or go snorkeling <laughs> in a lake or or maybe even do some diving like Jason did while it is still pretty warm outside. Uh, and, and we encourage you, all of you, to do that. And, and obviously, I, I will continue to promote jumping off docks as some sort of mental health strategy. Uh, other than that, as always, you, thank you so much for listening. You can hit the show notes via hodinky.com or the feed for more details. And you can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton, at J.E. Stacy, and you can follow the show at The Graynado. Should you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com. And remember, the Q&A is coming up, so please keep sending in those voice memos. We've been getting a ton of them. They've been great, and we want to get to a bunch because it's our kind of special bonus monthly episode. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. And remember that Music Throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And we leave you with this quote from Anais Nin, who said, I have no fear of depths and a great fear of shallow living. <laughs>